Well, good morning. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to be here today, and I pray that as we continue our look into this section of Scripture, that it will be that which impacts our, our minds, our thinking, our perspectives from here forth, that we will be a people that continue to look to the return of your Son and to be prepared for it. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We now enter into the uh, third section of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' prophetic teaching about the future and particularly about his coming. We have looked at the parousia, which is the Greek word for coming, that there are a sequence of events that take place that all result in his final approach and landing on the Mount of Olives to establish his kingdom here on earth. Seven years before his actual arrival is what is called the birth pangs and the great birth pangs. In the middle part of that is the abomination of desolation, which we have discussed. These difficult days of seven years are seen as labor pains by Jesus because there's going to be a birthing of a new world, and that is the kingdom of God here on earth for a thousand years, and eventually a brand new earth where we will live forever and ever in brand new bodies, never to die again. This is what the promise is for believers, and Jesus in this discourse warns the world of severe turbulence ahead. He's our captain, and he warns the world of this. It's going to eventually result in his return. But he gives encouragement to his people who have already put their faith in Christ that they will be preserved from these seven difficult years. Sometimes it's known as the rapture. Some can call it the taking because that's the literal Greek word or receiving. And we discussed that last week. Now we go into four parables that teach us about preparedness for his return. These parables are addressed to Christians. These parables are addressed to people who already have their place in eternity secure. They've put their faith in Jesus Christ. They will enter the kingdom. That cannot be changed. It's a done deal. It will never experience any kind of change. He is faithful to fulfill that promise. That is what all believers can rest on. All believers are secure to enter God's kingdom, but, and listen carefully, only prepared believers will rule in his kingdom. And there's a distinction. I personally believe that a great amount of confusion lies in the church of Jesus Christ today because they do not understand the distinction of entering God's kingdom and ruling in God's kingdom. All believers will enter and live in it forever. But only the prepared for his coming will rule in it and reign. Some people say, well, I don't really care about ruling as long as I'm there. And that is the mindset of many, many today. But that will not be the mindset when you're in a perfect body with a perfect mind standing before a perfect king for assessment of our lives. 
It will be at that time the full reality of these truths will be every experience of all of us. This is what Jesus addresses, and these four parables are somewhat sobering, but they're meant to be. And as we encounter them today and begin our study of those today, I pray that we will all be open to what God has to say as Jesus meets with each one of us face to face to determine those who will be in his cabinet, so to speak, in his new government on this earth for a thousand years and eventually on a new earth forever. John Avery, one of our pastors here at Fellowship Bible Church, was at a pastoral staff meeting one day when he told us of his recent trip to Chicago. He was on the freeway in that city when he noticed a large billboard that had been put there by a law firm. It was a law firm that dealt with personal injury. And of course, when we think of law firms that deal with personal injuries, we're talking about people who are helping those who have been hurt on the, work, on the workplace or somehow have had experienced some sort of loss that deserves certain compensation. And these attorneys represent these people to give them their fair due. But this particular billboard was not advertising their services for workman's comp or accident. Their advertisement consisted of two words with a question mark. Clergy abuse? Call 1-888 and then the number. Unfortunately, that is the world that we live in. We have heard story after story these last decades of children and young people being exploited by people who are supposed to be pointing us to God. But clergy abuse comes in all different forms and fashion. It's not only sexual abuse. There are people here at Fellowship Bible Church that have come here because of clergy abuse. They've been in churches where they've been hammered with law and scoldings week after week after week, never hearing about the grace of God. And they've come with their tongues hanging out because they've been abused by a pistol-whipping pulpit. There's other ways in which abuse happens, but it's not only clergy abusing people, but people abusing clergy. Throughout our country, many who are serving God faithfully have been terminated from their roles as being shepherds because of critical people and divisive uh, communications that's happening amongst the congregation. Uh, people that are gossiping behind the scenes and causing division in churches, and clergy can abuse people, and people can abuse clergy. And then there's people that abuse people. And we're talking here about Christians, Christians who can mistreat each other, and it's primarily done by what we say either to them or about them, usually the latter. And there's ways in which that kind of harassment and abuse takes place. When Jesus addresses these four parables, it's that subject that he puts as the first. I personally think it's because it's first and foremost, because how believers treat each other, how shepherds treat the congregations, how the congregations treat the shepherds, and how the sheep treat the sheep is of vital importance to God. And the prepared people for the return of Jesus know that well how important it is. 
I've mentioned before that Mark Carey in his series on his Isaiah has informed us of the characteristics of this coming kingdom. John Morrison, a few weeks back, shared with us about an event called the Judgment Seat of Christ, a judgment not for non-Christians, but for only Christians. And it's at that judgment that Jesus will determine who will rule and what they will rule in the coming kingdom as part of his government. And some will not rule at all. Now keep this in mind and listen very carefully. This judgment is not about salvation. It's about stewardship. This judgment is not about forgiveness. It's about faithfulness. This judgment is not about our position in Christ, but it is about our practice of Christ. The timing of it is after his second coming, and I'll address that next week. I think the scriptures point us to the actual chronological sequence when that judgment will take place. But who will be the ones who rule? These critical distinctions are so important or else it will lead to theological error on one side of the ditch or the other of the road. We must understand before we enter into these parables of it, it's also true that as we look into these parables, we need to understand that Jesus uses what we could call exaggerated language or better known as a figure of speech called hyperbole. That's when he says things that seem to be almost outlandish. Already this morning, Phil Cavell shared with us one of the examples of Jesus Christ using hyperbole, hyperbolic language. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. How in the world do you do that? That's impossible. And Jesus realizes that, but he's saying for sake of emphasis, keep it as secret as you can. That's what the message is. Another time he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Really? If our hands cause us to stumble, cut them off? Really? No, Jesus is saying, take extra measures if you need to, to keep your thoughts pure by what you see and to keep yourself innocent of what you could do with your hands. Take necessary precautions. It's hyperbolic language for sake of emphasis. Jesus says, hate your father and mother if you want to follow me. Really? I've got to hate them? Jesus is saying, no, that's not what I really literally mean. I'm saying that your devotion to me exceeds your love for them. And today as we enter into the parables, let me give you a fair warning. You're going to hear some pretty um, difficult language of hyperbole that has caused the Bible students around the world to scratch their heads. But I think as we go into it, we're going to understand what Jesus means. Now, the parable that we're going to address today is a parable dealing with the unfaithful servant, but I should also say the faithful servant, the contrast between the two. And they're the same person. Let's go into the distinction of these people, a parable, a story designed to teach us what do prepared people look like for the second coming of Christ, and what do unprepared people look like in the return of our Savior. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, and we'll begin in verse 45, the characteristics and practices of the faithful and wise servant first. Who then, he says in verse 45, is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household 
to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. Now here we have the wise and faithful servant. The story is this. A master comes, he has a servant, and he says to him, listen, I want to, I want to entrust the household to you. I want to entrust the kids. I want to entrust the other servants. I want to entrust the people here to you while I'm gone. Now, Jesus is referring to the fact that he is now gone, and he has put people in responsibilities to care for others. He's given us all responsibilities in that respect. The master's gone. And so this particular servant has been appointed to take care of them, to give them food, to provide for them, to meet their needs. And Jesus said, when the master comes back and finds his servant doing just that, caring for his people, for his family, his other servants, what the master does is that he expands this servant's responsibilities. And he says, now that you have taken such good care of my household in my absence, I want to expand your responsibilities and let you rule over all my goods. I trust you. You've earned this. You've proven yourself faithful. And now I want to extend you all my goods. Jesus is teaching the fact that there's rulership that awaits people who treat the other servants and the family well. Now, this whole issue of what the rulership is, we're going to talk more about that in two weeks, Lord willing, in the parable of the talents. But let me just say this. Paul says, if we endure, we shall reign with him. He says, if we suffer for him, we will be co-heirs with Christ. These are conditioned promises. These are not promises to every believer, but to the believers who he finds faithful when he returns. Remember, all believers will enter God's kingdom and live in God's kingdom forever and ever. But it, was the, it is the prepared believers who he will reward with reigning. But then we go to the downside. The characteristics and the practices of the evil servant. He says this, but of that evil servant. And the Greek construction here is he's dealing with the same person, but now if he's like this, he'll, this is what will happen, but if he's like that, this will be the consequence. And now he is following the pathway of evil, which is possible for any believer to do, is to follow the pathway of evil. And he says, if that evil servant says in his heart, my master, therefore we're talking about a believer, my master is delaying his coming. He's not coming back anytime soon. I don't expect him for a while yet. And when he believes in his heart that type of deception that he's not coming back anytime soon, it's the first step that leads to his spiritual decline. And it says, and he begins to beat his fellow servants. 
and to eat and drink with the drunkards. He begins to beat his family. He begins to beat the family of the master. He begins to beat the other servants. He mistreats them. He doesn't anticipate the return of the master anytime soon, so he abuses his power. The Bible teaches us about a man in the book of 3 John by the name of Diotrephes. All indications are in that passage he is a Christian and even a leader in the church. And Diotrephes says that he throws people out of the church who, doesn't, who don't do what he wants done. He's top dog church boss, and he mistreats the other Christians who don't follow his ways. And then John says, don't follow what is evil. He's practicing evil by exercising dictatorial leadership. John says, when I come, I'm going to call attention to his deeds. I'm going to call him down the carpet for what he's doing. Jesus is teaching about people who mistreat other Christians Folks, I would have to say that the majority of the time, the way that this is done is through our words. Nobody's innocent, including me. Words that can become critical words, even divisive words, words that we say in secret to others, or words that we might be open about. Sometimes it's to individuals, a lot of time it's about individuals, but it's a way in which we beat the slaves. Being critical of our leaders, being critical of other people and what they're doing and how they're falling short, or the list goes on and on. Blaine Pascal said, if all men knew what each other said of each other, there would not be four friends in the world. So true. Jesus said, whatever is said in secret in a room will be declared from the housetops because there is one that's always listening. He hears. And the servant who is beating the slaves with a critical spirit and looking for wrong and always highlighting the shortcomings of other people or a particular individual, it's beating the slaves. It starts small, but eventually it gets bigger and bigger and causes more and more damage. Also, he eats and drinks with the drunkards. He lives to himself, licentious living, enjoys things in the here and now, even at the expense of the people that he is to be caring for. He beats his fellow servants, says. It says, when the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour that he is not aware of. Do you remember those words before? No man knows the day or hour. This is the man that is surprised because he's, his master comes at a day and an hour that he doesn't expect him. He's been beating his fellow servants, and he gets caught red-handed by the return of the master. This isn't only true in the church amongst Christians with Christians. It's also true in the home. 
It's a very serious matter, husbands. I'm going to let your wives listen in on a minute. It's, very, it's a very serious matter when we mistreat our wives. Very, very serious. Sometimes we rationalize and think that they deserve it. No, they don't. They don't deserve that. Well, I don't beat my wife, but the question is, what about your words? The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, husbands, do not be harsh with them, meaning their wives. Speak to them with a gentleness, Peter says, as with a weaker vessel. Care for them as beautiful, fragile china cups that need to be cherished and valued because he's listening. You're not the only ones behind closed doors. When the master finds his servants and he comes back and he sees us caring and loving our wives, this brings great pleasure to him. As does when he sees believers treating believers with respect. They don't follow the pathway of criticisms and gossip and slander. I like to call them, let's not go there people. People that see a conversation going south at somebody else's expense and interrupts and says, let's not go there. Those are let's not go there people. There are many times in my own life I wish I would have been more of a let's not go there person. God honors the let's not go there people. What is the recompense? Here's where that hyperbole comes in. The master will cut him in two. What? No, we're not speaking literally slicing his body in half. It's obvious here that he is referring to the fact that he's going to be very cutting in his own words. The master is going to speak very directly and very cutting. Now, folks, I'm going to share with you a passage of Scripture that many of us know, but I don't think that we are all aware of the author's intent of this passage, and actually, we may not be using it totally accurately. Listen to the words. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We often think that that's a verse that's describing the Bible. But this verse is in the context of a warning passage about appearing before Jesus Christ. And listen to the very next words. For everyone who partakes only, or excuse me, he says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, verse 13, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing passes him by. And there is a day that we will stand before him and he's going to cut through the chase and speak directly and 100% accurately, assessing our lives. And to some, he is going to pierce through and say, well done. Mark Twain said, I can live three months off of a good compliment. <laughs> I promise you that the Christians that are going to hear those words, well done, thank you for treating your fellow servants, thank you for treating my children, 
thank you for treating my, your spouse the way that you did. We will relish and swim in that compliment forever and ever. It will never lose its beauty to us to hear those words. But his words can also say, as we will study in two weeks, you wicked servant. He will pierce into our hearts and we will experience his words very directly. Instead of ruling, he will assign us the same portion that he does with all other hypocrites. People who put on a face, they appear to be even serving God and doing all the right things, but behind the scenes they are conniving and manipulative and political and using their words to undercut others to elevate themselves. They're filled with hypocrisy and those will not be reigning, even they'll enter, but not with rulership. They will be given that portion with the rest, a loss. And then the weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, in the ancient Near East and even in the Eastern culture today, they're much more expressive. A funeral in the West and a funeral in the East is polar opposite. In the West, we're quiet and we sorrow. In the East, they wail and they mourn. And this particular phrase, as Dr. Joseph Dillow outlines extensively in his, his very comprehensive work called The Final Destiny, he gives evidence of the fact that this phrase is a phrase that simply means a strong expression of regret and sorrow. Sometimes it is used of those who are about to enter eternal hell. But more often it's used of Christians who are being reprimanded by the master for an evil lifestyle that they were living in when, they, when he returns. The judgment seat of Christ is not about forgiveness, it's about faithfulness. It's not about who will go into the kingdom, but how we will go into the kingdom. And these are sobering words and sobering thoughts, but needed ones. As John Morrison shared with you from 2 Corinthians 5.10, that we will all, as believers, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The very next verse says, Paul says, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, I go persuade men. It should be something that gives us pause. How will the master find us when he returns? Spiritual decline is inevitable when one stops looking for the master's return. But spiritual repentance and fellowship with God is restored when we start again to look for his return. In my study this time of this particular passage, I was personally impacted by the phrase, when he comes, we'll find him so doing. You know what that verse tells me? That verse tells me of the grace of God that there's still time because he hasn't come as of yet, at least not as yet of this moment. And by the fact that he hasn't, there's still time for us to make this right. It for sure is making it right with God. God, forgive me for being so critical of this person or that person, maybe my spouse, maybe our pastor, or 
maybe our parents or somebody else we, we find there and see their shortcomings. God, forgive me for being so quick to judge, so quick to think that I know all the answers and I don't even know what I don't know. Father, forgive me for not being patient and kind and speaking well of this person and holding my tongue. God's given us all the spiritual resources by which he will enable us to do just that. And now is the time of repentance if it's needed. And folks, no one's perfect. James says we all stumble in what we say. Every one of us does. I do, you do. And God's mercy is greater than all. And he's quick to forgive and to restore and say to us, okay, let's move on now and keep in mind my imminent return. And by his help, by his Holy Spirit, his word, that he enables us to be patient with one another, to treat one another with respect, even in our disagreements, to view ourselves as fellow servants with others and be slow to judge and be patient with our spouses, especially men with your wives. God, help me to be a let's-not-go-there type of person. In God's eyes, treatment of our fellow servants is first and foremost. It really is. A few months ago, Mark Carey had sent out an email to Charlie Spencer and John Morrison, myself, Jerry Harpool. One thing that we share in common is that we all went to the same seminary. Um, they were having an alumni breakfast in Manassas for a regional breakfast. I haven't gone to those things for a long time. Um, Mark wanted to go, and he thought maybe we should go and show our support because we have a few that are from FBC that are now taking classes there at the Manassas campus. So the guys weren't able to go, but I said, yeah, I'll go. And I thought it'd be a good time just to spend some time with Mark on the highway out there and back. And so we went. We got to Manassas, got into the building, and there was about 25 alumni there and seated in a they had the table set up in a square, and so we were all seated around it, and they were serving a catered breakfast from Panera Bread, and we were eating our bagels and drinking our coffee when the alumni director from the seminary, who had flown in that evening before, stood up and said, hi, everyone, thank you for coming. My name is so-and-so, and before we begin our meeting today, I'd like you to introduce yourselves. And so start on his left, and first person said, well, my name is John Doe, and I graduated in 1994 from this program, that blah, 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 and this is where I presently serve. Alumni director wanted these things. I want your name, the year you graduated, the program you graduated from, and where you're serving now. One by one. Then it came to me. My name's Don Hartog. I graduated in 1982 from the THM program. And I presently serve as one of the pastors at Fellowship Bible Church in Winchester, Virginia, on the northern end of the Shenandoah Valley. Thank you, Don. Next. 
My name is Mark Carey. I graduated in 1981 with the THM program, and I work with Don. That struck me. I didn't hear, I'm the head pastor at Fellowship Bible Church. I didn't hear, I'm the senior pastor. That could have been said, and no one would have thought a thing of it, including me. But that's not what he said. He says, I work with Don. This week I had lunch, and Patty did as well, with one of the founding couples of this church. And Joyce asked, why do you think our church hasn't gone through great division? And I said, one of the contributing factors, let me tell you a story, and I told her what I just told you. When you have pastoral staff that has been here 28 years, and 27 years, and 22 years, and 18 years, and 16 years, and 15 years, and 14 years, I'm just outlining how many years all of us have been here. You don't have that in most churches because oftentimes you have a senior pastor who's dictatorial and hard to work for and it's all about him and his empire that he's trying to build and he tends to beat the slaves. But not people who are looking for the Lord's return and who see others as their fellow servants. Mike Lukens talked to me on the phone last night after FSAT, he said, Don, I need to tell you this. Before the service started last night, there was a couple that I have not seen before. They were visitors, and they were in the foyer, and somebody pointed them to Mark, and then he went to Mark and said, are you, the, are you the pastor of this church? And Mark said, one of them. That's an attitude that we can all have towards each other. We're family. We're fellow servants. And I regret the times that I have forgotten that. I want to be one of those let's not go there people. And you know another reason I want to be one of those let's not go there type people? Because the Bible says that God will show mercy to the merciful. James says these words, listen closely. Judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. Christ will be merciless to the Christian who doesn't exhibit mercy to other people. They're holding grudges. They say negative things. They're slow to forgive, if at all. They remember the wrongs that have been done against them. They feel justified in the words they say about them because of it. But the merciful are different. Merciful people are, let's not go there, people. They're the people that say, I'm going to overlook that. They're the people that say, um, I'm not going to think about that and hold that against them. They're the people that are patient. They're the people that are very, very careful with their words to and about other people by God's enablement and help. 
I've got good news for you folks. The let's not go there people are going to stand before a let's not go there king. Because when we stand before him, we will be fully cognizant of our shortcomings, our failures, ways that we could have done differently or better. And we might even interrupt the king and say, well, what about the time that I missed this? Op- what about the time that I really should have that? And the king will say, let's not go there. Because that's the way you were with other people. And that's the way I'm going to be with you. There are things that we could talk about, but we're not going to go there. In the same way that you didn't want to go there with them. You read that this morning, by the way. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy, but mercy will triumph over judgment. Judge not, lest you be judged, for in the same way that you judge others, you will also be judged. You'll be judged by the same standard, and if you're quick to overlook, you're quick to forgive, you're quick to not go there with other people, you will face a let's not go there king when he will be examining and giving us his assessment of life. God, I want to be a let's not go there person because I want to stand before a let's not go there king. How we treat one another is very important in the sight of God. We serve with each other. We live with each other. We're family. And may the king find us so doing in treating one another well when he returns. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that your Holy Spirit will impress on our minds the importance of this in your sight. I pray that your Holy Spirit will also impress upon our minds that we will give an account to one whose words are sharper than any two-edged sword. And we want those words to be well done. Good and faithful servants. You will be ruler over my goods, over many things. And so, Father, we ask that you continue to work. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will intercept those moments when a conversation can be going south. That you will prick us, prod us, give us the boldness to say, let's not go there. Lord, we know there are times that we are called to admonish one another, but to do that directly and carefully and graciously and in love. But much of the time, words don't go that way. I pray that you will guard us from beating our fellow slaves and treating them with the dignity and the respect of who they are. They're children of the King of Kings. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.